Genesis chapter 50. We actually have two more sermons uh, on Genesis this morning and next week. Uh, I'm going to be focusing in on verses 15 through 21 this morning. And then next Sunday, uh, our pastoral assistant, Wayne, is going to come back and he's going to talk about um, the first part of Genesis 50 and then the concluding verses of Genesis 50. You'll see how thematically they tie together. But our focus this morning is on verses 15 through 21, like I said. Uh, We last looked last Sunday at chapter 48. Jacob, uh, nearing death, blesses his grandsons, two grandsons. Chapter 49, which we are skipping over in total, we've done this a couple times throughout Genesis. It's not to communicate that chapter 49 is unimportant. Um, It's just that it's uh, filled with more blessings. Jacob blessing uh, all of his sons who will end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's a lot of blessing going on in Genesis 48 and 49, and that is because this patriarch of the faith, Jacob, is nearing death. And in fact, at the very end of chapter 49, we have Jacob's death and burial. That takes us into chapter 50, um, where uh, the first part of chapter 50, verses 1 through uh, 14, focus on Joseph and other members of, of the family, as well as some of the Egyptians going to bury Jacob in uh, Canaan, as he requested. Um, again, Wayne's going to come back and look at that next week. And then that brings us to verse 15. So I want to read verses 15 through 21 for us. And just a quick reminder for context here. Uh, we haven't talked about this in quite some time. The context for the book of Genesis being written is that it was written by, by Moses for the people of Israel uh, uh, after the Exodus. So God miraculously delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt. He begins to move them uh, into the promised land as they journey toward it. And you can imagine, they hadn't heard from God for 400 years. And so you can imagine that they had many questions. They had heard about this God and his mighty deeds through their ancestors and the faith passed down to them. But they would have had questions about who exactly is this God? What is he like? And that was pretty powerful what he did just did to, to rescue us out of slavery. And so Genesis provides context. Here's how the world began. Here's what God intended for the world. And here's some of your family history that helps you have understanding and informs you of where you are presently and how to move forward. And it actually serves the same purpose in our lives. We've had a helpful reminder in this series of where everything began, where the world began, and God's good intentions for it, and how it went wrong, and how God is at work to make it all right again. So let me read uh, 15 through 21 for us. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, 
Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let's pray. God, our prayer is that you would meet us this morning in your word. You promised to do so, so we look forward to encountering your mercy and your grace and your presence. Um, We pray that you would speak your word to us in the way that we need to receive it this morning. You made us. You are our redeemer. And so you know how the good news needs to get into us this morning. And so we pray that you would do that for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I did a little research this past week on the art of reweaving. Yeah, really, I did. Uh, I'll give you context for why, um, but I want to share with you at the beginning of this sermon just a little bit about what I learned. So reweaving, if you didn't know or have never done it like I I haven't done it, reweaving is a specialized skill for repairing holes and tears in damaged garments. It involves hand-weaving thread strands into the garment's damaged area, creating virtually invisible repair. Stitch by stitch, the reweaver replaces the garment's original structure, rendering the damaged area undetectable. One reweaver said this, you reweave thread by thread to repair the damage. One reason that good reweaving is undetectable, it's almost invisible, you can't even tell that anything uh, happened or took place, is because that the work is done with yarn from the actual garment. The reweaver steals thread from inside seams and occasionally from hens, and the same reweaver said, wherever we can get it. And later, this reweaver uses the word of improvising. Sometimes when it's a very difficult hole or uh, difficult damage that has been done, we have to improvise and figure out how to go about making the repair. Why in the world am I beginning this sermon by talking about the art of reweaving? Because as we approach our verses this morning, particularly one verse in particular, that's verse 20. It's probably a verse that you are familiar with. Maybe even if you're not Um, that accustomed to uh, church, um, it's possible that you still are familiar with verse 20. So I want to just draw your attention to it uh, right now quickly. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I want you to think about God as the master reweaver. I want you to think about the work that God has to do to reweave and to repair and to bring back together all of the broken bits of life. That's our focus this morning. God is the master reweaver. And because God is the master reweaver, we live with a resilient and stubborn faith. Those words catch you by surprise. Maybe you're not used to thinking about faith in those terms, as stubborn, as resistant. But I'm going to encourage you this morning throughout the course of this sermon to think about faith as an act of rebellion. Now, some of you are like, now you're talking my language. I'm all, I like rebellion. But seriously, faith is an act of rebellion. How so? 
Well, as I shared a little bit uh, in introducing the confession of sin, we daily rub up against what is broken, what is fractured in life, in the world. And we are faced with the dilemma or the question of how is it made right? How does it come back together? Can it all come back together? Can it be made right? And sometimes it takes really stubborn faith to actually believe that God is the master storyteller. That's where we're going with this sermon. It takes stubborn, resilient, rebellious faith almost to look at the brokenness of the world and say, no, that is not the final word. That is not the true story. God is the master reweaver. So this statement that Jacob, that, that Joseph makes, God meant it for good. I want to begin by talking about the theology behind it, the, the worldview, um, if you will, that it um, gives rise to. By worldview, I, I mean a way of viewing the world. So how does this statement, which is rich uh, with theology, how does this statement, this belief that Joseph has, how does it construct his worldview? Well, notice how this dialogue begins. We, we, we want to trace what leads Joseph to make this statement in the first place. So as we heard, Jacob, Joseph's father, has passed away. Also, the, the father, obviously, of these two brothers of Joseph. And so after they hear that their father has passed away, they are filled with fear. Why? They're afraid that Joseph is now going to turn on them. Brief overview. Uh, Joseph, when we first met him, 17-year-old kid, was favored by his father, Jacob. And his other brothers resented him for this. They became bitter, um, plagued by jealousy. And so they end up selling him into slavery, which leads to a downward spiral into Joseph's life. That's one way of viewing the story of what they intended for evil. But there's another way of interpreting it, as we'll come to. And so these brothers now, after all of these years, they've reconciled with Joseph. Um, we don't have time to fill in all of the gaps. I'd encourage you to go back and read or go online and listen to some of those sermons. But now, without the father present any longer, for whatever reason, they are fearful that Joseph is now going to turn on them, that he is now going to seek revenge. They're so afraid that they are afraid to even talk to him in his presence face to face. So they send a messenger. And the messenger goes to Joseph saying, your father gave this command. Now, that, I mean, pretty much all the commentators I read are in agreement that this is most likely a lie, that it's most likely fabricated because of their fear. Um, they want to make their point across. They want to make a good case for Joseph to not bring harm to them. And so they put it on their father. The father said, leave them alone. Be nice to them. It's a paraphrase. And so the message comes to Joseph, and then Joseph eventually uh, meets up with his brothers. And they say to him, essentially, we have done wrong. And what's interesting, if you look at verse 17, Say to Joseph, and this is the, the message that they want to have delivered to him, please forgive the transgression, or what they're saying the father said, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. This word transgression, this word sin, this word evil, it's basically, these words are covering the full range of how sin is spoken about 
in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. And so they recognize what they've done. We've, we've seen this throughout some of the previous chapters, if you remember. We've seen the, the repentance that these brothers have gone through, how they, have been become conv- how they became convicted of their guilt because of their wrongdoing and the injustice that they had committed against Joseph. So they've been deeply aware of this, and they seem to be, well, not seem to be, they obviously still are dwelling on it. And so they're, they're drawing from the full vocabulary that they, they have to communicate how bad it was um, what they did to Joseph. His brothers came. It says that Joseph wept when they spoke to him, when he spoke to them. Why? Why would Joseph weep? We're not given the definitive answer, but my guess, and I came across this in most of the commentaries that I looked at this week. I think it's because Joseph is deeply upset and deeply disturbed by the fact that his brothers still doubt his goodness and his kindness. That after all of these years, the father now passes away and they would think that Joseph might potentially turn on them and seek revenge. And so I think it's probably the case that Joseph is deeply troubled by the fact that they would think this of me? Have they not seen my consistent character over these years? And so I think that's why he falls and he, why he weeps. Verse 18, his brothers also came down and fell before him and said, now this is so ironic because if you go back to Genesis chapter 37, one of the reasons that the brothers were so resentful of Um, Joseph is because he was really good at having dreams and interpreting dreams. He was really bad at telling his family members about these dreams that he had when it would probably be best for him not to do so. So he had one dream in Genesis 37 um, in which he um, envisions his family members bowing down before him and he's ruling over them. I mean, that's a pretty bold and arrogant thing to then go tell them, guess what's going to happen Look what's happening. The dream is fulfilled. It's, it's actually not the first time um, that they've been in his presence, and we could say that this is a fulfillment of that dream, but this certainly is. They unknowingly are fulfilling the dream, the very dream that they would have been resentful of and hateful toward Joseph of. They are actually fulfilling it as they are down at his feet. How does Joseph respond? Fear not, and he ends up saying something along the lines of fear not twice in um, his words to them. Fear not, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The use of the word good here in verse 20. I think that this word basically serves the purpose of binding together the entire text of Genesis into one sweeping statement. In other words, if you want a summary statement of what Genesis is about, and we could go further, if you want a summary statement of what the biblical story as a whole is about, look no further than Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God minute for good. From the beginning of Genesis, remember the refrain that's repeated in the creation account? 
it was good, it was good, it was good. And then it gets to the end of God's creative project in making the world, and God looks and he says, it is very good. And from that point on, God's desire is to fill his creation with goodness because God himself is good. And we could use different words interchangeably for this. One word that we've drawn from frequently, drawn from frequently is shalom. That refers to universal harmony and flourishing. It's goodness. This is God's heart. This is God's desire. This is what God wants for his creation. It is the very reason for which God made the world and people so that flourishing might take place. And so everything that God does from creation until the end of this book, and then, of course, in the rest of the biblical story, centers on him being good. Joseph knows this about God. So he summarizes his life story, which ends up being a summary of God's story, with these words of God taking evil and using it, intending it for good. This language here, meant for good, um, one commentator makes the case that it's, the, the word's root can be traced back to he, uh, a Hebrew word or a Hebrew concept which has to do with, guess what? Reweaving. See, my introductory story actually is relevant to the sermon. I just wanted to leave you hanging for a little bit. What a beautiful concept. What a beautiful picture. That evil is in the world. It has intruded God's good creation through human rebellion, sin. Yet God is able to supersede that. He's able to work in it, among it, uh, outside of it, around it, in order to accomplish his good purposes still for creation. In other words, God is incredibly resourceful. He is the master reweaver. And so as we begin over these two weeks to wrap up our time in Genesis, it's good for us to remember that this is what is going on. This is what the book is about. God is working out his, pur- his good purposes for the good of his creation. Now, what do we do with this theology? What do we do with this belief, this worldview, this way of seeing. So for Joseph, think about this. I mean, this is such a profound statement, particularly in light of all that has taken place in Joseph's life, all of the injustice, all of the hardship, all of the pain, all of the suffering. If I were Joseph, I definitely feel like I would be inclined to be stuck in cynicism, in disbelief, mistrust of of God. But not so for Joseph, because this theology that he has, this belief he has, overrides all of that. It supersedes all of that. So for Joseph, his, this theological statement, this theological point, is a way of interpreting um, what has taken place in his life that changes everything. But I, I, as I'm thinking about this, I, I, I think that maybe we're prone to two different extremes when it comes to our encounter of hardship, trial, um, 
tragedy, those sorts of things in the world. In other words, the brokenness of life in this world. I think, um, at least as we begin to pull theology into it and interpret that, one extreme for us could be maybe what we would refer to as romanticism. That we have this happy-go-lucky faith. And to others, to those around us, it might seem and appear as though we have a very deep and strong faith, but actually the way we're living our lives is we're ignoring, we're sweeping under the rug, we are not actually wrestling with and dealing with what is hard and painful and broken in our lives and the world around us. And so the reason that we appear to have a strong faith, or the reason that we seem to be happy-go-lucky is actually because we have put up walls of protection and we um, are not allowing ourselves to be made vulnerable out there in the world. So we we can use theology in that very uh, unhelpful and destructive way, to basically take Joseph's statement and say, and just use it all the time and say, oh, no big deal. God works all things out for good. That's not what Joseph is doing. Joseph is, I mean, this is a man who several times in um, these most recent chapters has wept. He is a man who has wrestled deeply with God. He is a man who is not naive about the broken realities of life. And so this statement originates from depth, not shallowness. Another extreme could be that of cynicism, which I've already referred to. I know for me in my own life, I think maybe that's the way I'm prone to go, um, to just kind of accept that, well, this is the way it is, nothing we can do about it. Um, And sometimes I struggle to believe that God is active, that he's at work, that he's present. Not so for Joseph. Now, it's not to say that there weren't times in his life where maybe he was prone to either one of these extremes, but... Where he is here at this point, he is at a place of depth, and his theology is giving him a worldview, a way of interpreting what has taken place in his life. And so I think that rather than romanticism or cynicism, God calls us to realism. That's where Jacob, that's where Joseph is. He's realistic. He's not sugarcoating or overlooking the broken realities of life, but he's also not kind of living as just this shallow, happy-go-lucky kind of guy. He's wrestled with it, as we've talked about, and so he's being realistic. And I had a a helpful conversation with um, my wife Friday night. We were out to dinner, and she was teaching me some theology, um, which she's good at doing. Uh, And she was mentioning something um, that she was teaching to some uh, church-planting wives um, that morning, or it was something that she had recently been introduced to or heard in training, and they were, they were talking about a spectrum. I can't remember what the particular subject was, but, uh, but sometimes we think, okay, this is one end of the extreme, this is another, and then the gospel or Christianity is, uh, uh, is in the middle. That, that's not actually true. It's something altogether different. It's not on the spectrum. And so the realism that we're talking about, it's like, eh, it's kind of in the middle of romanticism and cynicism. That's not what we're talking about. This is a tool, a resource, a worldview that is not from the spectrum. It comes from the outside to help us to make sense of what we're encountering in life. One commentator um, used this line, unflinching in realism and undoubting about the income. 
the uh, outcome. Unflinching in realism and undoubting about the outcome. So we're unflinching about realism. This world in which we live is not the way it's supposed to be. The world as it is is not our home. And so as we've talked about at different times, we're pilgrims, we're foreigners, uh, we're strangers in that sense, making our way, our journey through this world. But at the same time, we can be undoubting about the outcome. God is at work, and he is working all things together for good. Those things that were intended for evil, he's taking those, redirecting them, and he's intending them for good. This is the story of Scripture. We hear it in the summary from Joseph here in Genesis 50. Um, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 I know that you've probably heard this verse before because it's one of those verses that has been maybe taken out of context more than any other verse in the Bible. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. What are the plans of God? Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, another verse that you may be familiar with, says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? Good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If you didn't believe me before that the heart of God is for goodness and flourishing for his creation, we've now just done a survey. I mean, it's only three verses, but we've seen it in the Old Testament. We've seen it from the Torah. Genesis is the Torah, one of the first books of the Bible. Torah means law. We've seen it from the prophets in Jeremiah, and now we've, we've also seen it from one of the New Testament letters from Paul. This is the theme of the biblical story. It's the theme of what God is doing in the world. He is working out his purposes, which are good. This helps give us, gives us perspective. And that's what Joseph has in this moment. He has a perspective that his brothers don't yet appear to have. And it's a perspective, as we're going to see, it's not just simply theology, it's not just simply in his head, it's not simply a way of viewing the world, it actually shapes the way that he lives in the world, the way he leans out into the world and makes himself vulnerable. Joseph is not one who puts up self-protective walls, he's not one who gives himself to romanticism or cynicism, but rather because of this theology, because of this belief that he has about God being one who can reweave and redirect and take evil and turn it for good, gives him this perspective that is freeing and liberating and changes everything. And so I want you to get this this morning. I, I, I want you to, to hear this from God's word. This truth changes everything. No matter what you're going through, no matter how hard it is, how dark it is, how difficult it is, this truth out of the, the, the mouth of Joseph overrides all of that. And again, I'm not pushing you toward romanticism. I, I definitely want to help bring you out of cynicism if that's where you are. And if you are in romanticism, I want to bring you out of that. I want you to be realistic, but I want you to hear this truth from Scripture that what might be meant for evil God can take and mean it for good in your life. That overrides everything. So no matter what else might be going on in your life, this is true. 
Joseph is able to live wisely out there in the world because of this theology. How does this form Joseph's character? I, I think that's a really good practical question to ask. And it might, I haven't thought about this, um, but it's probably a good question to ask of all of our doctrine, all of our theological, our various theological beliefs. How, how does this form our character? Not just do I believe it, I mean, obviously that's the first part, but in light of it, how does it change me? How does it change the way I live in the world? How does it form and shape my character? Well, here's where I want to come back to um, what Joseph says to his brothers two different times. So in verse uh, 19, he begins by saying what? Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? See, this is the other freeing, liberating thing about Joseph's good theology. He doesn't have to play God. That's, that's a big deal because you know what it's like to try to play God. I, I do that in my life all the time. When I'm, I rub up against the broken realities of life, so often my first tendency is, all right, how do I solve it? How do I make it right? How do I bring healing? Because I don't want to go much deeper into this. And there are a variety of ways that we can play God, but Joseph is freed from that. He doesn't have to pretend to be God. He doesn't have to try to play God. God is God. And because he believes that, it enables him to live wisely with humility. But he says to his brothers, fear not. And then again, verse 21, so do not fear. So his introduction, do not fear. His conclusion, do not fear. What's in the middle? It's that good, rich theology of what God does with evil. He turns it for good. How are, how are these statements of do not fear drawing attention to Joseph's character? What is God's intention? What is God's vision for his world? Flourishing. Goodness. That's what, that's what his heart is. In other words, we, we could summarize it in life. Life. That's what God desires for his creation. Life. Genesis 1 and 2, the world was filled, was teeming, overflowing with life. And alienation and separation from God in Genesis 3 brings about death. And the work of God's redemption, his recovery, his reweaving in the world is to bring life and fullness back into the picture. What is Joseph doing? He's embodying that. In other words, he's basically saying to his brothers, no, no, stop. Stop living under guilt and shame. Don't do that any longer. All things are new. We're living under a different reality now, a new reality. God is able to take what was meant for evil and to turn it into good. And as we think about this, um, it could be that you have um, had evil committed against you. In, in, I mean, we all have. But maybe that's where you are this morning. That's what you're, you're, you're um, especially feeling this morning. Injustice, um, evil, um, pe how people have wounded you. And, and that's kind of where you're dwelling right now. This is good news for you. It's what Joseph's brothers um, needed to hear. But it could also be that you are feeling, you, you just feel like you are oppressed 
by a cloud, a weight of guilt and shame. And so you need to hear that this is good news for those who have committed evil. You see, it works both ways. The fact that God can take evil and turn it to good is good news for both the one who commits evil and the one who experiences the evil. And so for Joseph's brothers, they have they committed incredible wickedness and evil in their lives toward the man who was standing before them. Sold them into slavery. That was after they gave consideration to kill him. And he's saying to them, fear not. Fear not. I've come into this rich theology. I've come into this worldview that that actually changes me and shapes my character. I want to invite you into it. That's basically what he's doing. Fear not. All things are made new by God. There's a new reality. You no longer have to live under this guilt and shame because of the evil that you have committed because God is able to take it and redirect it for good. And so in the very words that Joseph speaks, he is life-giving, right? He's giving life to his brothers. He's making a way possible for them to continue on. You know, it could be, and maybe this has been true of you in different seasons of life or you have experienced when there's been a person who has some degree of power over you and you are seeking mercy and they don't grant it. And instead what they do is they use what you have done against them in the past, and now the power that they have over you, they use it to manipulate you and control you in different ways. I mean, Joseph could have done a lot of, a lot of stuff here, right, with this power that he had over them. And yet, he is life-giving. He speaks words of life into them. So this, here's the connection. This theology, this belief that Joseph has is actually transforming the way he speaks his very words. He's a life-giving person because of what he knows to be true about God. And that's really the point. He is imitating the very character and person of God. A a summary um, that ends up being used in the book of Exodus to describe God's character refers to God as gracious and forgiving and merciful. That is who Joseph is showing himself to be here. But it's not only in his words. We, We have the story that's preceded, right? We know Joseph's history in recent months and years. Joseph didn't just come to believe this theology about what God is doing in the world in this scene, in this moment. He's been believing it, and it's been shaping the way that he interacts with those around him. It's been shaping the way that he leans into and lives in the world. And so he's been a man who has personally sacrificed He's been a man who has taken risk on behalf of others. In other words, he's been a man of virtue. And so this theology is changing his character. And so in Joseph, it's not perfect. He continues to be a flawed man. But in Joseph, we increasingly are getting a picture of who we are meant to be and how we are meant to live in the world. How do you become a person who is willing to personally sacrifice and take risk on behalf of others? How do you get to that point? Especially in the face of difficulty, of pressure, of hardship, particularly when maybe there are other people who are working against you, trying to 
interfere with the good that you're seeking to do? How do you, uh, how are you sustained in continuing to move forward and not put up self-protective walls, but to take risk and move out into the world on the behalf of others? The answer, or, or I can ask it in the form of a question, who do you believe God to be? Who is God? If you believe God is the God that Joseph speaks of, that the Joseph knows in a very, at a very deep and intimate level, that will sustain you. Because you know that no matter what may come into your life, no matter what hardship you might encounter as you're pursuing good for others, God is resourceful. God is the master reweaver. And he will take and direct those things and turn it for your good. Now, you might not always know how it's working out for your good in the moment. You might not know, always know how it's going to work out um, for your good in your lifetime. But it doesn't mean that God is not active, still working toward your good and the good of his world. Remember, that is God's heart from beginning to end of Scripture. It is what has um, held together the saints um, throughout history, Joseph, Jeremiah, those in exile, Paul, the Apostle Paul in the midst of persecution and suffering. It comes back to who they believe God to be, and God is sovereign. God is in control, and God is able to take what is meant for evil and to turn it for good. A final thought for us is this. And it has to do with how do we live more, this is going to sound moralistic at first, but just let me, hear me out. How do we live more like Joseph and not Joseph's brothers? I mean, it comes back to that the question of who is God? Who do we believe God to be? But why is Joseph thriving? Why, why is Joseph experiencing blessing? It's because he is seeking to align himself with God's good intentions. What I mean is that Sure, you could go out and commit a lot of evil, and God, can, God has the, the power and the capability to turn it to, to good in your life and the lives of others after it's been done. But that's not God's intention. It's not God's desire for you. God's desire for you is that you would go out and seek to do good, to align yourself with God's mission and purposes in the world. God is a God who is working out his good purposes, and he extends an invitation to us to join him in that. Now, how do we not end on a moralistic note? Because the message of this sermon, please hear me out, is not go be like Joseph, not Joseph's brothers. I mean, do that, but that's not the end of the message. That's not the main theme. The main theme is what? God is the master storyteller. How do we really know that this is true? You know, I mean, we could still struggle with the character of God and, you know, God seems to be a distant God. He's out there. How do I actually know that he's intimately involved um, reweaving all of the broken bits of life into a good story? How do I know? Well, here's the, the thing about the Christian faith. God is not a God who is distant and out there. He is actually a God who entered in, who experienced it himself. And we have that passage of Scripture um, that was read for us in the assurance of forgiveness. Um, I left my worship guide down there. 
Acts chapter uh, 2. Of course, this is last week's worship guide. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Question, is God sovereign or are humans responsible? Both. Good answer. Both. Scripture teaches that it's both. But God is the master reweaver. And so God, in the person of Jesus Christ, enters in. He mixes it up in his lost and broken creation. He rolls up his sleeves, goes to work for redemption in his life and in his death. And so the question is, all right, was it Did evil have the last word that Jesus, who lived a perfect, innocent life and ended up crucified, is that the story? Or is the story that God was able to turn what was meant for evil and to turn it for good? Well, we know from the survey of the Bible that that is the story. So God played by the rules of his own story. You see that? He entered in. He faced, was confronted with the brokenness of this world. He faced injustice, went unjustly to a a, a cross, and yet he turned it for good. For whose good? For our good. For those of us who place our faith in him and trust that he is good and that he's telling a good story for us. I, uh, I have to go back on my word. Easter Sunday, I used a Harry Potter reference, and I said that it would be my last Harry Potter reference for at least quite some time, but I'm going to backtrack on that. Um, I want to talk about my favorite scene. My favorite scene is actually at the very end of the series. The movie leaves this out. Don't get me started on that. But this scene that I have in mind is a scene in which Harry who is very clearly the Messiah figure, however you want to think about him in the story, he is finally face-to-face with his archenemy, Voldemort, who is the the evil one in the storyline. And Voldemort is starting to feel vulnerable because Harry has basically come back to life. You ever hear that story before? Uh, If you haven't read it, I am so sorry. (laughs) I told myself I was not going to mention that just in case, but there it is, so... You don't have to read it now. But he's face-to-face with Voldemort, and Voldemort starts um, going back and talking about previous things in Harry's life. You see, you didn't realize this, Harry, but I'm paraphrasing. I was working toward your evil. And guess what? Harry would mock him. Harry mocks him and says, actually, you didn't realize this, but this was the bigger story. This was what was actually happening. And I love that scene. I'm so mad at the movie because it's powerful. Here you have Harry basically mocking evil. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. You're about to lose. You're losing. You're going to be defeated. You're wrong. That's actually not. That was turned for good. You need, you're interpreting the story all wrong because you are evil. And then he defeats him. I think that provides a really rich and helpful Uh, illustration for us as Christians for how we 
live in this world and how we face evil. Remember, I talked about a resilient faith, a rebellious faith. That's what we need. And that's what God is willing to give to us. And so, brothers and sisters, may we mock evil. Not superficially, not you know, moving toward romanticism, but may we mock it. May we not accept that, that the, the way things are have to be the way they are because they won't be one day. And God invites us into his mission of bringing his good purposes to bear on all of creation. So may we not accept, may we not just say, oh, well, this is just how it is. This is the way things are. Through the help and grace and mercy of Jesus, may we cultivate together a resilient faith, a rebellious faith, even a stubborn faith that we might look in the face of evil and say, nope, nope. What God, what you meant for evil, God means for good. Let's pray. Father, give us the faith to believe and trust that this is the kind of God that you are, that this is the kind of story that you are writing. You have proven yourself to be trustworthy in coming and living and dying and rising again in our place. This is the reason that we can definitely know, have confidence that the story is true and that this is your intention for the world. I pray that you would cultivate our faith, that you would make it stubborn and resilient and rebellious, as you only are able to do. Help us to navigate life in this world wisely. I pray that the gospel would inform and shape our character the way that we live. May we be known as a people who take risk and sacrifice ourselves for others, because that is who our God is. That is what you have done for us. So I pray that we would believe the good news and that we would embody the good news in the world for your glory and the good of others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.